The road to success is paved with persistence. How can we teach that to our kids? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Tuesday, October 24th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, your ability to learn changes with your effort. So how come so many kids go through school thinking they just aren't that smart? Today's Teacher Talk explores how grit, growth mindset, and self-compassion help kids succeed in the classroom. It's also how we succeed as adults. Perhaps you've heard the doom and gloom headlines about health outcomes for rural Americans, but here at home, rural health care is thriving and seeking innovative ways to meet those very real challenges. We'll recap a rural health summit where the news was decidedly upbeat. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. The Bush Prize is an award that celebrates nonprofit organizations that are highly valued in their communities and have a track record of successful community problem solving. Ginger Neiman is Senior Program Officer at the South Dakota Community Foundation. I talked with her about the 2023 Bush Prize recipients from South Dakota. So nonprofit organizations can apply for the Bush Prize through the South Dakota Community Foundation. It is in partnership with the Bush Foundation, but all grant applicants can access the application through our website. It is something that we'll be offering for the next several years, but really what we're looking for are organizations that are within South Dakota that have a pattern of innovative solutions. We're looking for them to also be looking at how they're being collaborative and resourceful, really being inclusive, you know, engaging all of their partners, key stakeholders, working collaboratively with partners and own ownership and decision making, and also looking at being resourceful and using other resources outside of their organization. The other thing that we're looking for is, does the organization's leadership foster a culture of innovation? And then lastly, really looking at uh, their governance and finances. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that culture of innovation. What does it look like? What does it sound like when you go through those applications? Right. So really looking at, you know, how are, how are they looking at the work that they're doing differently? How can they be looking at the work that they do internally, how the rest of their staff is being engaged and being able to bring ide new ideas to them, what it looks like to be working with their partners and those that they serve. How are they looking to be problems, looking at those problems and how they're going to solve those problems? Yeah. Um, one of the recipients this year is uh, founded originally by high school students. Tell us about Lost and Found. Yes, Lost and Found really was organized and created by a group of high school students some years ago. And what happened is they found that there was a need on the college campuses across the state of South Dakota where suicide had been uh, a real issue. And how could they look at that? on college campuses and address that problem. And so they have done an amazing amount of work uh, in, in this area. They have contacted and worked with the Department of Health. Uh, they have worked with all of the college campuses across the state to address 
college and and students that are attending college to to be looking at how it is to work with these survivors and some of the suicide loss that they're experiencing. Yeah. Um, maximum award goes to Black Hills Special Services Cooperative. Tell us a little bit about that organization and the work they do in their community. Yes, so Black Hills Special Services did receive $500,000, and that is based on 25% of their operating budget. So the maximum is $500,000. The work that Black Hill Special Services is, you know, they provide specialized education services and resources to cater to the unique learning needs of students and families in the Black Hills region and really across the state, ensuring inclusive education. They're really working with a cooperative of 12 member schools, and they serve non-member schools across the state, including Native Nations. We really work with families from cradle to career as employment is seen as a cornerstone to the quality of life. It really gives a person purpose and contributes to society. Tell me what you hope the legacy will be of some of this prize money as you've seen it over the years develop. It's not always the first year where you see everything that has been planted blossom, but in the years ahead, Um, What do you look forward to in the coming years after the prizes are implemented across the state? Absolutely. You know, we really hope that the Bush Prize will be able to give these nonprofits an opportunity to think bigger and differently about the work that they're doing and really make South Dakota a better place to be. It's so exciting to be able to see what happens when these nonprofit organizations have that opportunity to think outside of their daily work. They're very busy people. Yeah. As we know, they, they, they're wearing very many hats. And really to be able to have them be thinking about what could be in South Dakota is really an amazing journey that they can be on and what can South Dakota become because of the Bush Prize. As finalists for this year's award, Dakota Resources and LifeScape will also receive $10,000. More information about grants and awards is available online at sdcommunityfoundation.org. That's under the Grants tab. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Your eyes are the windows through which you see the world, and when they are healthy, you can fully see and interact with your surroundings. But if something is wrong, you need to see your eye doctor. Actually, you need to see your eye doctor before you notice something is wrong. Dr. Andrew Ellsworth joins me by phone now for a look at the importance of eye health. Dr. Ellsworth, welcome back to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. Hi, Lori. Thanks for having me. This is one of those things that can be hard to remember to make your appointment if you don't need corrective lenses, especially. Why is an annual checkup with your eye doctor so essential, and at what age should you begin? Well, there's a a lot of things with our eyes that uh, if we catch them early, um, we we can do things to help slow or delay or stop any vision loss. And uh, sometimes some of these, once the damage is done, that might be it. So you you may feel like your vision's good, but there could be there could be some things starting up, and and so it's good to stay on top of that. To, 
having this topic uh, for for this week for Prairie Doc uh, helped me remind me to get my own uh, eye appointment too. <laughs> and you know, this I, I've said it before, so this should not be a surprise. Of all the places I don't like to go, the eye doctor is the number one because I just have a lot of anxiety about people touching my eyes or getting too close to my eyes. Mm. Found a really great doc who's patient and will work with me. I practice, uh, you know, taking a few deep breaths before I go in. Any other tips other than the fear-based, like, hey, something could be wrong, um, to sort of prepare yourself for the eye doctor in case it's not your favorite thing? Well, um, yeah, you know, being mentally prepared um, and uh, sharing any concerns with your eye doctor, uh, not just issues, but if if there was a reason that made you hesitate to go in or that you were nervous about sharing that with your doctor, and that's good with your eye doctor, regular doctor, because we want you to get the help you need and we don't want you to uh, miss out or, or, or be uncomfortable. So, um, so it's sharing those concerns is important too. Um, I'd, 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 I'd say that it's helpful to, have a list of your medications and uh, share your medical conditions because there's a number of them that can be related to the eyes and it's helpful for the eye doctor to know that too. What are the emergency eye scenarios where you think you need to get to someone right now? Well, one thing I think of off the top of my head is 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 a torn retina and that can cause sudden vision loss uh, maybe on one side of your vision or on the end of your vision. Um, and uh, and sometimes that can start out even just as temporary or like a sheet being pulled down or sometimes even flashes of, of lights. Now that can sometimes be other things too, uh, but anytime you're, you're quickly starting to lose some vision or noticing some changes, it's good to get checked out. Talk about some of the other ongoing um, eye diseases that get worse over time. Yeah, you know, one thing to consider is glaucoma, uh, which you can have without knowing it at all, and that can happen from increased pressure in the eyes. And so sometimes they'll do a test to check the pressure of the eyes with a regular eye exam, and sometimes there's medications then that may be needed to help prevent or change that. Um, diabetic retinopathy is really common, obviously more likely if you have diabetes or prediabetes, but that's also something if they catch it early, they can, they can do something to help preserve your vision. Is there ever a time when, um, somebody might have a a problem with their vision and it turns out to be something medical? I guess I'm thinking of migraines, you know, for example, anything else come to mind to you that, you know, you need to make sure you include your primary care doc in the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. And and it can be hard to know where to start. And, and, and I think it's okay to start to either place first or your medical doctor first. Um, there's sometimes I might end up sending someone to their eye doctor and vice versa. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but, yeah, some t- sudden changes in your vision, yes, could be a, an eye issue, but sometimes it could be something else such as a stroke or or uh, um, maybe if you're lightheaded and your blood pressure is low or, or something else like that. Um, so, yeah, it can be hard to, to tell for sure, um, but the, the bottom line is not to ignore those things. Sometimes you think, oh, this might just go away, right. and, and sometimes that's some precious time. Yeah. 
All right. Any final thoughts? How about um, cataracts and the sort of timing of getting that treated? Yeah, that's something to talk about your eye doctor. It's, it's not always an emergency, but it often is just going to get worse. And so cataracts are extremely common. Basically, if we live long enough, you end up getting some cataracts and mm-hmm. it can be easily fixed with surgery. And it's amazing what a difference that can make. In fact, I've uh, known that too. I think there's a study that showed that that helped to decrease the risk of hip fracture because oh, when you sure. can <laughs> see better, your balance is better and you're less likely to fall and break a hip. So, so getting your, your vision um, as best you can is, is just best for your whole body. Another condition I think about would be uh, macular degeneration, which can cause central vision loss and is very common, again, once we get older. And so there's a lot of reasons why yeah. it's a good idea to, to get in with your eye doctor. Go check it out. The latest episode of On Call with the Prairie Doc is on Thursday. Catch Keeping You Connected to Your Surroundings, the Importance of Eye Health on SDPB TV One and the On Call Facebook page. That's October 26th. 7 p.m. Central, 6 Mountain, Dr. Andrew Ellsworth, part of the On Call with the Prairie Doc team. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Lori. Have a great day. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Erica DeBoer spoke at the second annual summit on the future of rural health care. That summit happened last week and explored how to best serve the health of rural Americans. DeBoer is chief nursing officer at Sanford Health. I caught up with her after the summit. I have to tell you, it's, it's a bit indescribable, the energy that was in the room. So when you say we had the highest of caliber individuals coming to Sioux Falls, South Dakota, to share their in- insights about how do we reimagine healthcare and how do we address the workforce needs that we have. So when I consider the day, when I consider the energy in the room, I'm quite awestruck, to be honest. I think uh, the other key takeaways for me is these are problems that aren't just centralized in uh, the Midwest where we live, but it's actually across the nation and all of us. Uh, have a responsibility and accountability to lean in and figure out how to do it well. This was actually our second Rural Health Care Summit, and so when I consider even the difference from last year to this year, uh, we continue to really accelerate and ask those really hard questions no matter who we're asking. So we had uh, folks from CMS We had folks from McKinsey. We had folks locally that were helping to really lean in and answer those questions. So energy was palpable. Uh, I'm re-inspired with hope that we can address the challenges that are before us. But the way we can do that is together with all of our industry partners, with our clinical teams, as well as our policyholders and legislators. For listeners who don't know CMS, you mean Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, correct? Thanks for the clarification. That's correct. So I have noticed, and I'm curious um, if you have seen it too, but there seems to be a national narrative. I've stumbled upon three or four articles lately in major um, outlets, national news outlets, that are painting a picture of um, what it's like to live in rural America and it sounds like we're all going to die young. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bleak sort of narrative taking hold based on health outcomes and stuff. I'm wondering if you have noticed that at all, if you feel like that is based on a seed of urgency, 
which would be important to address, or if it's more politically motivated to just be another distraction, and they're missing the big picture of all the work that's going on in places like rural South Dakota or the region where Sanford operates. What a fantastic and thoughtful consideration. I think we're not going to die young. We're actually living longer. And so I think what we're looking at is the fact that we have to learn how to work differently. Uh, And I think that takes us uh, leaning in and figuring out how to be more innovative. I'd say the trend that we're seeing is that people are actually moving to rural areas because of quality of life, because of the way that we're able to care for our communities in a different way than what you might see in an urban setting. The other piece that I might just share that brings me hope and I aspire to do is how do we look at the tradition of healthcare and how do we use automation? How do we get rid of some of those administrative tasks so that our people can get back to the work that brings them the most joy? Our patients are well taken care of and have amazing amount of engagement uh, and commitment to the care that we provide. And honestly, it's not just about what happens within the clinic or the hospital setting, but it's the communities and how we partner to really bring joy and quality of life to our team. So I'm actually very hopeful, and I think what people realize is there's not a lot of systems that can bring together a rural summit like we did. And I think in all actuality, we're actually ahead of the times and more innovative than what some uh, are seeing in some of our larger, uh, more urban areas. It seems like Very there, proud of that. there might even be some applications that urban areas could take from some of your innovations. Can you give me an example of when you say, you know, we have to reimagine this or we have to learn how to work differently? Give me an example on the ground of how, what that might look like. Uh, I have a couple examples. So if I think about how I'm trying to reimagine the way that we do our work in the hospital setting, we actually have a virtual nurse program that we've started. We use technology, including speakers and videos in our patient rooms uh, in order to help us actually extend uh, and support those frontline caregivers, not only our nurses, but our unlicensed staff. So basically, Uh, We have uh, experienced amazing nurse that sits in a hub and actually can be requested by the patient, by the nurse, or the nurse aide just at the request in the room. So again, this reimagining means how do we put different tools in our people's hands to try to help us get back to the care that will always be needed. And so that's one example in the inpatient setting. The other way that we're really trying to reimagine how we do healthcare is how do we refocus our energy on the work that really matters, not only for our patients, but for our people. So how do we ask those questions ahead of time? How do we engage with our patients ahead of time so that we can have that meaningful conversation and address, address their true healthcare needs? And in some cases, that means partnering with software solutions and software companies to help us actually make that happen. But it's with the mindset of, patient-driven, but also more efficiencies for our frontline teams, knowing that we can't keep on doing our work the exact same way. So how do we continue to focus on that value-add work with patients at the center? Is rural health care a good investment for a health system, or is this largely mission-based work? Ooh, great question. Uh, I I would answer it twofold. We actually are always, have always been very mission-driven, 
but leaning in and actually making sure that you understand some of the innovative spirit as well as the discovery and the testing of science that we have the ability to do in rural communities, especially at Sanford with our research division, with our opportunity to partner with clinics across the world. Leaning in and an investment in rural is really going to be key for us to continue to discover and answer some of the burning problems that we have as we move forward in healthcare. We've been having a few conversations about um, South Dakota children, beginning with maternal care and how many people in the state live in maternal care deserts. Um, having prenatal care, childbirth, very hands-on activities. What gives you hope that some of that maternal care can be shored up and um, improved in a way that helps the, the health of South Dakota children? Oh, another really fantastic question. We actually are using technology to help this happen. So how do we reduce that friction for those moms? How do we allow them to get care via virtual settings? How do we put tools in their hands so that we can allow them to see their provider and be monitored and measured over their pregnancy, but not always have to drive to that destination to get the care that they need? So it's really understanding how that technology works, understanding how to engage our moms and those families, as well as education to make sure that they understand that these options are available for them uh, and that we can and will be there no matter what that means and no matter where that might be. So right time, right place, and how do we make it convenient so that it's the easier thing to do uh, to continue to look at health and well-being. So Yes, I know that there are some OB deserts, lots of conversations about that across the nation. How do we use technology to help us support that? And we have a program actually across our footprint in which those um, low-risk pregnancies can actually do the majority of their visits right from the comfort of their home. Hmm. Um, talk to the next generation of student nurses who are coming in, might want to live in those rural communities and work in their hometowns. Um, looking for an education, looking for a future, what do you want them to know about nursing in the next 10 years, 20 years? Nursing is the absolute most magnificent career you could ever choose. Uh, I've been in a host of different specialties. I've had the opportunity to um, build programs and do lots of things. The flexibility in the Nursing practice is amazing, and when you think about the ability to impact a rural community, those are your family members, those are your neighbors, those are the people that you can actually build those relationships with and really truly lean into wellness, lean into chronic disease management, and be part of that community in a bit of a different way. I'm so proud of the nurses that we have at Sanford and how they're so engaged and committed to delivering that care. When I think about what I need from our new nurses starting is we need their brilliance, we need their eyes, we need their innovation because they're going to be early adapters of some of the technology and some of the process improvements that we're making in order to make the biggest difference for our, for our patients. Finally, before I let you go, any things you mentioned policymakers, are there things that we should be watching as we move into the 2024 legislative session that you think are top of mind for Sanford, really worth understanding now before we get to the, you know, to before we get to the big debates, what's ahead? Uh, I think probably the top things that we need to pay attention to is 
any staffing mandate rules that come from our government are probably not going to truly address the need. I certainly respect the fact that they're trying to solve the problem. The issues are when you put law behind some of those pieces, the number of clinically trained staff and mandating some of those pieces can't be put in the hands of those individuals. They need to be put in the hands of the individuals that are doing the work in, on, on boots on the ground. So staffing mandates are going to be an important thing for us to be paying attention to, as well as how do we create our nursing workforce of the future? How do we make sure that we have the faculty in our colleges? How do we ensure that we have that infrastructure to help support our nursing and our medical teams of the future? So how do we create systems that help us actually accomplish that so that we have the workforce and we have the infrastructure to continue to grow and take care of all the people that need us? That's Erica DeBoer, Chief Nursing Officer at Sanford Health. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. On this week in 1911, President William Howard Taft completed a three-day visit to South Dakota. During the visit, he gave a number of speeches addressing international peace concerns he arrived in Rapid City on the 21st before traveling by train to visit Pier, Huron, and Aberdeen. The South Dakota State Historical Society documented Taft's visit to the state. He was traveling by train from the West Coast back to Washington, D.C. But along with his stops and speeches in larger towns, President Taft also made brief stops in smaller communities. And for many South Dakotans, it was their first chance to hear and host a sitting U.S. president. So here's a peek at some of the notes and documents at the South Dakota State Historical Society that relate to the visit. President Taft arrived in Edgemont at 6.50 a.m. on Saturday, October 21st, and the lead Daily Call noted that he was greeted by cheers, hand clapping, and waving of handkerchiefs. 20 miles away at Minicata, the president made a short speech while holding the three-year-old daughter of the train conductor. He made an unscheduled stop in Hill City and then arrived in Deadwood at 12.25 p.m., where more than 600 schoolchildren waving American flags greeted the president. One of the students presented the president with flowers. President Taft toured the 1,200-foot level of the Homestake Mine and said, I can see big buildings, battleships, and armies whenever I want, but it is only once in a lifetime that a person has an opportunity to see such things as these. While in Pierre, he attended Methodist church services with Governor Robert Vesey before making stops in Huron and Aberdeen. Taft spoke at the Northern Normal and Industrial School and at a banquet at the Aberdeen Commercial Club. Taft's special train left Aberdeen near midnight and concluded the three-day visit to South Dakota during this week in 1911. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, a writer and professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. More in the moment is up next. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Today, Teacher Talk is going to tackle a big question. What does it take to succeed in the classroom and in life? The short answer, grit and growth. For the longer answer, you can listen to this conversation with the delightful Gina Benz and Jackie Wilbur. Gina is an English teacher at Roosevelt High School in Sioux Falls. Jackie is the director of the Center of Student and Professional Services at the University of South Dakota's School of Education. As always, you can find the Teacher Talk companion blog that includes all the links we're going to talk about in this conversation on our website, sdpb.org slash teachertalk. We are going to talk today about grit and growth mindset. It might be what you think it is. It might not be what you think it is. So listen to the whole conversation. And Jackie, you have started out um, putting some things and some uh, some researchers and their their way of thinking and the things that they've learned in line for us. So we're going to start with Angela Lee Duckworth and talk about we can measure IQ but that doesn't necessarily mean we're about to measure or predict academic success. Mm -hmm. Tell us more. Yeah, so Angela Lee Duckworth is a researcher that I admire, and I did put a link to her TED Talk on grit in my blog post, so if you're interested, you can can listen more. Um, But her research stemmed from when her time as a middle school math teacher, and she noticed that some of her brightest students, the ones with the high IQ scores, weren't doing so great in her math class. And then so her less math savvy students, as a way of putting it, were really acing it. And so she wondered like that question put her into the research arena. And she did decades of research in the Chicago public schools to try and predict, you know, who would graduate and who would win the spelling bee and all Mm -hmm. these kind of like academically competitive questions. And the term that she came up with was grit. And she defines that as passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. This is kind of like your day in, day out consistency of putting effort towards something. And folks who have that are more likely, that's like the determining factor on whether or not you will academically succeed in whatever academic adventure you move towards. Hmm. Gina, does this resonate for what you see in the classroom with students? It's not necessarily the high IQ kids that are getting the top test scores. That's how I always saw myself. When I was in high school, I got very good grades, graduated second in my class, and I always thought to myself, if people only knew, I'm not that smart. I just work so, so hard. And, you know, now that I'm older, I think, yeah, I, I have some smarts maybe, but but back in high school, that was my thought. You know, it's just that it's it was all a ruse. I just worked really, really hard. Uh, and then now that I'm in, I teach a lot of different classes. Um, a lot of I have four different types of classes I teach, and one of them is AP English Advanced Placement. And sometimes that's where students really start to struggle for the first time as writers and readers. And there are some students who shut down at that point because rather than saying, oh, maybe I'm not as smart as everyone has always said I am, they say, I just won't do it. Then it's Mm. more about my will than my skill. And I'd rather they just think I don't have the will to do it rather than not having the skill. Mm. Interesting. I also love this idea that you find the success, and I think a lot of A students can relate to this, that you still feel like you're an imposter 
because you had to work mm -hmm. because you had mm -hmm. grit to a certain extent, mm -hmm. but you're not valuing that part. Like you're not going home and saying, wow, I worked really hard for that. That's um, right. Good, you know, pat yourself on the back. Uh, instead, you're saying, I'm dumb. <laughs> I shouldn't yeah. have yeah. to work that hard. Yeah. This is the great Jackie thing that we're always trying to undo is this idea that smart people are effortless. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And actually, that really segues nicely into this concept of fixed and growth mindset, because fixed mindset is the idea that our traits are fixed, like you're a smart person, period, end of discussion, and you're a smart person at eight years old, and you're a smart person at 80 years old, and it's unrelated to your behaviors. And that, according to the theory of Carol Dweck on mindsets, is, is just not true. Like, we evolve and grow and change over time. And so being smart is not something that you get to be labeled as um, because you're evolving and growing and changing and so people who put effort into whatever it is that they want to evolve and grow and change at have results from doing that and so it's it's absolutely true that it's part of our kind of way of thinking that smart people are effortlessly smart um, but that's a fixed mindset idea that oh, I shouldn't have to work at this because it's just blatantly true about me. And then what happens is what Gina is talking about in the classroom then, if you're quote unquote smart and then you bump up against something that's challenging, now what, right? Mm -hmm. Because if it's true that you're just smart, then you either have to discount this as like not really an issue or you have to come up like, it sounds like Gina's students have done of saying like, well, I just didn't try that hard. I don't have the will to do it. But you have to make up another reason because fixed mindset means that it's permanently true. And so other evidence is, is hard to process then. I love in Carol Dweck's uh, TED Talk that you linked to in the Teacher Talk blog where she uh, researched like what kind of behavior happens when you hit that wall. And the first one was the temptation to cheat. Yeah. Right? Like if I'm not good at it, then maybe I can game the system somehow. Um, number two was compare yourself to someone worse. Mm -hmm. Well, at least I'm not at the bottom or I'm good at, you know, this class, but not the other class or three avoid it altogether. Yeah. Run <laughs> away <laughs> from it. That's what happens with that rigidity when that wall is there. Um, Gina, how do you deal with, you know, we're talking about your goals. Not every student is going to acknowledge that they have a goal to be successful in the classroom, maybe they want to avoid the pain of poor performance, but they might not, Might is that your goal or is that my goal as a student? How do you navigate that? 100%, you know, uh, not every student is, even in that AP English class, not every student yeah. is needing and wanting an A. They just want to be there to learn. There are people who come to school, and this was foreign to me, right? I was in high school thinking, <laughs> thou must get an A. Mm -hmm. Thou must have a 4.0. Uh, but there are people who are like, I just need to learn. If I get a B, I get a B. So I'm going to take that tougher class. And that is really good growth mindset. Right. Mm -hmm. But also to your question, I like to emphasize that we are all smart. Every single person is smart. It's just in different ways. Mm -hmm. It's just in different ways. My dad is so smart mechanically. <laughs> he can fix anything. So I have a ton of students like that too. Students who are so smart at welding, and I don't know the first thing about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the power of yet. Mm -hmm. Jackie, yes. I don't know how to do, I don't know how to weld yet. I don't mm -hmm. know how to do long division yet. Yet. Mm-hmm. 
So that's one of Carol Dweck's ideas for how to promote a growth mindset in yourself, in your classroom. If you're a parent, you could use this with your child. She even said that some schools have switched to grading this way of just yet or not yet. And so it's the idea that any skill um, that you need to learn in order to graduate from high school can be learned and it's just a matter of time. Um, and so that kind of language just is a matter of yet. Like I, I know this now or I don't know it yet. And that way of thinking, I it really helps to change your mindset of like, I either can or I can't, or it's just a matter of time. Jackie, the third researcher we're gonna talk about is our self-compassion expert, mm -hmm. uh, Kristen Neff. Yeah. Tell us why self-compassion, because I'm getting all, you know, motivated and grit, <laughs> grit and growth, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get that goal, and then Kristen Neff comes along and I exhale a little bit, and I'm like, oh, there's a, a way to do this that is less damaging than perhaps some of the ways I've achieved goals in the past. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why she matters to, yeah. to your work, yeah. Yeah, so Kristen Neff has been really influential to me personally in my the way I relate to myself and then the way I relate to the classroom. Um, and her work is about the way self-compassion helps us through difficult situations. So if you think about the definition of grit, it's passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. So how do we do that, right? Like how do we stay in it when things get tough? And I do think that, and I, I think this is kind of a continuation from our previous conversation is that yeah. the way we talk about it in America is to get hard, right? Like get tougher, do more push-ups, do more, uh, you know, just like drill, 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 and get harder and harder and harder on ourselves. Um, but what Kristen Neff's research says is that actually what you need to do is be soft and comforting towards yourself. That the more you can understand yourself as a human, the more you can be kind to yourself, the easier it is to see what's possible. Because if you're in a state of self-criticism, you're in a state of stress, and that does inhibit your brain's ability to think beyond fight or flight. And so that's not the ideal headspace to be learning complex concepts. Yeah. We need to be in a state of relaxation and ease in order to like think about, oh, maybe I could do this or maybe I could do that in order to problem solve. We're mammals, mm -hmm. she says in her talk, and we respond to warmth, gentle touch, and soft vocalization. <laughs> I love that part of her talk. It makes me feel me cozy I'm just like listening ready. to it. Yes. But yeah, I think about like reading is one of my favorite activities and yeah. I don't like to do it when I'm in a state of stress because it's hard to read. I want like a cocoa and a blankie and a, you know, yeah. like a warm corner. And I can read much faster and a lot longer under those circumstances. But we're afraid, mm -hmm. Gina, that if we do that, if we treat our children like that, if we treat our students like that, and maybe most of all, if we treat ourselves like that, that we will become self-indulgent narcissists. <laughs> mm -hmm. which, 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 in her TED Talk, we'll go back to this in a minute, like there's a narcissism problem, like no lie, mm -hmm. we're raising some narcissists out there. Mm -hmm. But Ooh. this isn't the reason why we're doing that. What does this bring up for you, Gina? I'm thinking about how I, when I first learned about all of this, my kids were pretty little. I think my son was two and my daughter was five or maybe four and seven, and uh, it just changed everything to know that I cannot like put a label on them. I can't say, oh, you're so smart. You're so good at math. Yeah. You are, you, you're writing. You're like a, you're a future author. 
because that puts a label on them. Instead, I needed to do something with more depth and say, ask about their process, ask about their choices, uh, tell them I loved their work ethic, that kind of thing. So parenting-wise, I saw this work with my own kids and then implemented with my students. But then you're, you're talking about being gentle with yourself. And, <laughs> you know, I'm currently working on the next thing we'll talk about next week. And I, had, I have to set it aside. I, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm struggling with some points in it. And I have to say to myself, I'm going to put this in a drawer. A, a metaphorical drawer. I'm going to mm-hmm. close that drawer, and I can open it again on Thursday. And it will be there for me, but I just need some time for my mind to maybe really integrate all of the ideas and work, work through some things subconsciously. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. Jackie, say more about, because I know listeners are wondering, um, what about this generation that we see that sometimes appears to be a bit self-indulgent and narcissistic. And we don't want to raise children and and students who are just navel gazers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Right? (laughs) But we also want them to relate to themselves and other people kindly. What, what's worth teasing out there for you? Yeah. I mean, I think you touched on what Kristen Neff talked about in her TED Talk of this idea that there is a rise of narcissism that's happening in the United States. And I think so much of that has to do with also this concept of fixed mindset because it attaches to our ego. And if we're saying, I'm a smart person, and that's my identity, and then some evidence shows up like a failed test or something like that that contradicts that then we don't have the skills to move through that and that's where narcissism can start to come into place because you have to do things like cheat or lie or tell yourself a different story or look for someone who does worse which sort of reinforces this see i am smart and i don't have to take in any other information otherwise and that kind of builds that that narcissistic wall whereas self-compassion and and being kind to oneself says, you know what, human beings by our very nature make mistakes and don't get things right all the time. So I can take in the information that I failed this test and I can be curious about why. Was it because I didn't study the correct material? Did I not put in enough time? Do I maybe not care about this subject? Mm-hmm. Like it, it causes some self-reflection in a way that is actually productive as opposed to making up stories to reinforce this ego identity of being smart. So I think it's, a, it's a, just a shift of, of being able to change the way you're thinking about information that comes in. Um, and I would like to think that that creates like more reflective, thoughtful people who aren't just navel gazing, but who are really trying to grow and improve their self identity. Being curious seems to be a key word here of mm-hmm. trying to figure out those things that you just said. Is this maybe not that important to me? If you have a goal that you haven't reached yet, maybe that's like what's what's going on here. Be curious about that instead of just beating yourself up mm-hmm. about it. Mm. I want to yeah. add about the narcissism. I, uh, in my own research about that, mm-hmm. I know that narcissism, we think of it's somebody who thinks they're all that and has a huge ego, but really at the heart of it, narcissists tend to be, tend to really lack confidence mm-hmm. and then they overcompensate. And so it gets to that heart of not feeling good about yourself. Mm. And then it c- comes out in such unhealthy ways. Yeah. 
um, I, I find it there's a thread through here about comparison, mm-hmm. which I think would be another thing to sort of just focus on that. All these researchers said things about the dangers of, you know, comparing one student to another, yourself mm-hmm. to... Um, Mm-hmm. that's fixed, right? Yeah. And then that's also where if your self-esteem is based on, well, at least I'm not that guy, mm-hmm. um, that's probably not the healthiest self-esteem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, <laughs> because yeah. we do have this shared human condition. I read a blog from a friend of mine um, who writes uh, every Monday. It comes in my inbox. And this one was about the words, it's like this. It's like this. So you're you're experiencing a very difficult time. School started um, for example, and all the kids are adjusting and your classroom is a little, you know, out of control it feels and you see the teacher next door and they say, well, yeah, it's like this sometimes. Like that. Mm-hmm. This is a shared experience of education that we're coming from one thing to going to the next thing. So it is in life. Yeah. You, you bring up a point. Uh, this is not just talking about kids and students, Yeah. right? I'm 46 years old and we have a whole new big computer program in my school uh, it's called a learning management system. And uh, it's a lot to learn. Yeah. And, and I have to dig in and say, you can do this. This is not a problem. This is a puzzle. And maybe I need to take time and not expect myself to get it right away. But know that it might take this whole semester to really figure it out. It might take the whole year to figure it out. But I know I can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've discovered about getting older is that more and more, those kinds of things we are... Um, expect to figure out on our own Mm -hmm. whereas when I was in school I looked took an entire class on like page layout for newspapers Mm. and like a software called Quark Express like the entire Mm -hmm. semester Mm -hmm. like we learned every little nuance step by step lesson by lesson there was a textbook and and we built on our knowledge now when I came to this job there's this software learn it Like intuitively go through it. Yes. Maybe there's a tutorial on YouTube, but there's not going to be six months of, you know, lessons that build upon each other. And I really think we should bring that back, first of all. But <laughs> it's intimidating it, because yeah. it, there was value in learning at that pace. But boy, we want to do things quickly. I know we don't get user manuals with our yeah. with our phones. Right. Because they're supposed to be intuitive. Intuitive. That can be scary. Mm-hmm. It can be scary for a lot of a lot of people. All mm-hmm. right. So we've talked about um, success not being linked to IQ, this growth mindset, and the importance of self-compassion, um, and really avoiding those labels, Jackie. Let's let's sort of leave people with the the language to use for your student when they are struggling. Mm-hmm. Um, as an educator, and really as, a, as an educator, the language you use with yourself when you're trying to figure out how to be the best teacher possible. Yeah. I mean, I think everything you all just spoke about it is inherent in this conversation, right? Like, just because we don't get something right away isn't a label of, like, I, I am a tech person or I'm not a tech person yeah. or I, I can uh, master this learning management system or I can't. Everything is just a matter of time. And as soon as you put a label on it of, like, oh, I, I am a math person or I'm not or I'm smart or I'm not or I'm an artist or I'm not, it pigeonholes people into this box of I am or I am not. And really, that's just a label. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. that's completely made up or, or accurate, who knows, but really this idea of like, I have time to 
to learn and grow and evolve and change. And I will do that because life is long, hopefully. And so there's there's plenty of time to be all these different ways and to learn all the things I want to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the last things I wrote about in the blog um, that I think kind of speaks to this too is that I think growth mindset is most appropriate to think about babies learning to walk. Mm-hmm. Like we don't just shout at a baby when it falls down and be like, you idiot, you're so bad at walking uh-huh. Get it together. Why don't you intuitively know how to walk? You're not a walker. You'll <laughs> never be a walker. You'll never be one. If, no, we like clap and cheer and smile yeah. and like be so proud. And it takes them a long time to learn to walk, you know? Yeah. And so I think if we can use that metaphor or analogy with ourselves, no matter what we're learning or our students are learning, that's the idea is to like clap and cheer for ourselves the same way we do a baby learning to walk. And clap and cheer for each other too. I love that. You can find and share this conversation and read the companion blog, which has all the links to the TED Talks the teachers were talking about there on our website, sdpv.org slash teacher talk and that is our show for today we hope that it served you on the next in the moment you can't educate a child who is hungry that sentiment from george mcgovern has dakota political junkie seth tupper considering the legacy of an ambition to use political power to feed the world then tupper juxtaposes that desire with political ambition of a different kind We'll also look ahead to what the weather might have in store as we prepare for El Nino for the first time in four years. I'm Lori Walsh from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening.